Bada bang, bada boom. How are we in? We are live. We've jacked into the Matrix. What's up, fam? Welcome to the show. Just hang with us for a couple minutes here while we get everything up and rolling. Gotta not neglect our Facebook person. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, we got our Facebook fan forward slash S yeah. in the house. Or about to be. Let's go. All right. All right. What's up, Facebook fam? Everybody, this is actually a podcast and Meaning Making 101, where we are covering John Brabeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We are live on Facebook, we are live on YouTube, and we are live on Twitch. You can find links to all the places if you go to anchor.fm forward slash actual I. That is the home of the podcast, and there's links to Spotify, YouTube, our socials, Twitch, everything is there. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. And uh, this episode, we're going to be covering the conclusion of John Verveke's theory of wisdom. And he's going to introduce the prophets of the meaning crisis. There's actually a few more episodes following this, but as he states in the video description for this episode, let me see here. Will we be? Yeah. And you'll notice the title is spaced funny. And this all is that. the conclusion of his argument. Oh, yeah. So if you, <laughs> you were saying that. This, yeah, yeah, YouTube is taking more and more characters away. So forgiveness for the title. But those who are uh, text and grammar people. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's what it is. So yeah, so Verveke says on this episode, just to be clear, there are four more episodes. The conclusion is the conclusion of my argument. I then put it into dialogue with the prophets of the meaning crisis. And let me just check something right here. Okay. Let's jump over to another screen real fast, fam, and I'm going to actually bring this over here. There we go. Yeah, let's jump on over. Check out Mark Mulvey's Medium. Mark Mulvey followed the Meaning Crisis series and took notes on every episode, and they are immaculate. I love that he always includes a quote from Verveke that stood out to him from each episode. And this quote here really helps sum up the entire series and last episode. We're seeing that wisdom is a dynamical system that is counteractive to the machinery of self-deception and that helps to afford the self-organized transformation into the life of flourishing, a life that is deeply meaningful. Something that we're all missing in this day and age, our lives are increasingly devoid of meaning as we have chopped out the moral systems and the wisdom traditions of our past out from underneath ourselves and, you know, healthfully questioning things. But we have, as Einstein put it, the fanatical atheists are like slaves in their grudge against religion as the opium of the masses who can no longer hear the music of the spheres. What happens when we, begun, when we begin to doubt our old traditions and misunderstand perhaps the reasoning behind them is that we lose our handle on how to interact with the world and one another and in an agreed upon fashion that we can all appreciate and understand. So we have these examples of Christ, Socrates, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, and so on and so forth that have stood out to us over the centuries. What exactly is it that they're trying to tell us? 
and how can we live more meaningful lives and you know counteract the downward spiral our species seems to find itself in in this time of great division and dissolution so yeah that's uh one of the quotes that i really appreciated there that mark Mulvey highlighted and there's another one where towards the end of his notes here let's scroll on down he describes philosophy philosophy which comes from the term philosophia. It is the fellowship, love of wisdom. We aspire to wisdom, and we always aspire to wisdom because to claim, and this is a deep point, that we have achieved wisdom is a kind of mistake. It's like calling ourselves woke, rather than understanding that we're all in a process of continual awakening together. And maybe we never wish or think ourselves woke. Maybe we always be awakening. Maybe we always have room to grow and change our ideas and conceptions. It may be unpleasant, but it must be done. I believe. So wisdom, then, is an ecology of psychotechnologies. And what are psych psychotechnologies again? Techniques Mental of techniques the mind. Of the mind. There you go. Beautiful. Like that we develop. That we develop over time mm -hmm. to language de Deal with the arena that we're in of the world. You mm -hmm. know, culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Meditation. Yeah. What all is these it? Are uh, literacy, numeracy. Yeah. Um, the idea of represent. Uh, you know, like say, like with money, uh, rep uh, oh, yeah. representative value through. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, an artifact. So we hold all of these yeah. in our head and. We live through them. And so wisdom is an ecology of psychotechnologies such as mindfulness and contemplation cog and cognitive styles like approaches or orientations to reality, like unconditionality, like Jesus taught, that dynamically and reciprocally or, or dynamically in a reciprocal fashion, that means that they're feeding back and forth constrain and optimize each other such that there is an overall enhancement of our capacity for relevance realization, how the human brain can realize what is relevant, how the mind re realizes what is relevant to it. Relevance realization within inference, insight, and intuition, internalization, understanding, and gnosis, transformation, and aspiration. That's a lot but it seems that wisdom does do all of this for us. So we're seeing that wisdom is a dynamical system that is counteractive to the machinery of self-deception. And that helps us to afford, helps to afford us the self-organized transformation into a life of flourishing, a life that is deeply meaningful. Yeah. And uh, using virtues as components to its own machinery, if you will. Um, we notice in the great wisdom traditions that Vir the cultivation of virtues helps to optimize the human being in relation mm -hmm. with their world, helps to optimize entire cultures and, so and yeah. societies, civilizations as a result. So that's the name of the game, fam. So, um, yeah, I thank you all so much for being here. I think, uh, is there anything else we want to talk about before we jump on in? We're not going to try and summarize the entire last, last episode. Yeah. All of these yeah. episodes have been building upon each other. And uh, if you guys do find this series captivating, interesting, inspiring in any way, make sure that you like and subscribe to follow us here. And make sure you comment, and it helps the al that helps the algorithm reach more people than anything. 
And you can also share some love with John Verveke. Go on over to his channel on YouTube and like and subscribe his work as well. Engage with the man. He's, he's open and he's there to help us understand where we're at in our world today and how we may usher in, awake, usher in an awakening from the meaning crisis. All right, fam. So let's do that thing. We're going to jump on over to the show. Let it begin. Make it big. Make it big. Yeah, yeah. Boom. All right, we're dropping in full screen, coming to you guys. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time, I attempted to draw together um, all of the other theories, and, and I don't mean just the psychological theories, although they're most salient right now, but also the uh, philosophical theories into an account of wisdom. I presented a model to you, uh, a theory of uh, wisdom developed by myself and Leo Ferraro from 2013, in which um, we are enhancing uh, inferential processing through active open-mindedness, enhancing insightful processing uh, through mindfulness. Uh, we're enhancing the capacity for internalization by internalizing the sage and cultivating Sofrasen. Um, our, salience of our salience landscape naturally organizes away from self-deception and tempts us towards the truth, <clears throat> or at least the, what's true, good, and perhaps beautiful. Uh, that's perhaps a better way of putting it. And that, that coordinates the propositional knowing uh, associated with the, uh, in, inference, uh, the procedural knowing associated with insight, the perspectival knowing associated with internalization together, and that, that, as I said, that is directed towards realizing Sofferson, and that that can help cultivate a, a more moral existence, the connection to virtue, mastery in the sense of coping and caring, and meaning in life. Uh, but of course, one of the criticisms I made was that the notion of meaning in life there was too simplistic, and it needs to be uh, integrated which, um, with, with a much more developed account that's already in the literature, and, uh, and, and I'm contributing to that by work I'm doing uh, with others on meaning in life. I pointed out that the Verveken Frau model is missing participatory knowing. It's missing the relationship between, or at least I think it misrepresents, misaligns the relationship between the kinds of knowing. Understanding is missing. Transformational experience is, transformative experience is missing. Uh, aspiration is missing. Gnosis is missing. So all of these things need to be uh, deeply integrated uh, together. I tried to give you an account of what I think, sorry, that's too, that's too grandiose. I tried to suggest the beginnings of an account of how we turn basic understanding, which is to grasp the relevance of our knowledge into profound understanding uh, by integrating uh, the account of understanding with the account of plausibility so that profound understanding is the generation of plausibility by having convergence onto a contextually sensitive optimal grip that is transformatively transferable in a highly effective manner in problem finding in many different problem finding, formulating and solving in many different domains. I also uh, brought out the idea that in addition to inspiration, this is a term I'm giving for sudden, more sudden, insight-laden, insight uh, transformative experience. You can have um, 
what Callard calls aspiration. It's much more incremental. It still can't be solved in an inferential decision theoretic fashion. She agrees with Paul on that. She does argue, though, and I agree with this argument, that uh, aspiration must be considered a form of rationality, which she calls proleptic rationality, because you're going to get into a performative contradiction. Uh, if, I, if my aspiration for uh, rationality and my love of wisdom are not themselves rational processes, I, I'm kind of in, in, in trouble in my model of rationality. Then, given all of that philosophy, what's missing, as I argued, is an, an extensive psychology of aspiration. Uh, I, I know uh, one of my colleagues, um, Jensen Kim, is working on uh, exactly that uh, problem. And he's, of course, doing it in connection with a psychology of wisdom. I did suggest to you that uh, we could see one of Callard's ideas of how we do this by, right, we create something that's double-faced, well, I argued ultimately symbolic, having aspects of Gnosis in it, that allows us to make the, the, the jump, the leap, uh, even if it's an incremental one, uh, right, from who we are now and what we value now to the place where I've acquired some new thing that I value for its own sake. We use the example of music appreciation, etc. Right, um, but unlike Callard, I see that as inherently relying on our symbolic capacity, our capacity for enacted uh, symbolic behavior, what I call gnosis, serious play. <clears throat> and, and because, I mean, in serious play, it's always like when I'm playing with something, I'm treating it as, for example, a sword, but it's actually a piece of plastic. That, that kind of serious play, that symbolic ability, especially the inactive one that gives me anagogy and analogia, that's really important, I would also argue, uh, for aspiration, at least for the placeholders that do important work within aspiration. I also argued that aspiration also probably has an affective component to it, and I suggested that wonder, and we saw how central wonder is to the cultivation of wisdom, that wonder is the, uh, is the, uh, is the affective state that's most conducive uh, to aspirational progress because of the way it opens up our identity in our world, triggers the transjective relationship, and puts it into, right, that participatory knowing puts it into a developmental trajectory. So all of that needs to be integrated together into an account of wisdom. And then I suggested to you, drawing it all together, is that wisdom is an ecology of psychotechnologies slash cognitive styles, right? That dynamically, and that means recipro recipro reciprocal, reciprocal optimization, that dynamically enhances the relevance realization that's central to inference, to insight and intuition to internalizing, especially internalizing the sage, to understanding and gnosis, and related to gnosis, to the relevance realization at work within transformative, within transformative experience and aspiration. And then I already noted to you that that enhancement, that way in which I'm talking about wisdom, that dynamic system, that ecology, is already overlapping, and as it should, right, as it should, it is overlapping with the account we gave of enlightenment, where enlight a crucial element of enlightenment was to create a counteractive dynamical system that counteracts parasitic processing. And I'm showing you that I think of wisdom, I'm arguing that wisdom is a kind of dynamical system that is counteractive 
for overcoming self-deception and therefore would be counteractive for overcoming parasitic processing and foolishness. This is a processing account. You can see, I think, given what I've just said, how it would ameliorate foolishness. We've already talked about how it might enhance flourishing by, and we did that in connection with Sternberg, how it's going to help you be better connected to yourself, uh, to other people, and to the world. But I would argue that, especially where it's overlapping with enlightenment, that what wisdom is doing in order to enhance meaning in life is it's enhancing religio. So we've got wisdom here, right? And I'm sort of saying there's a significant overlap with um, enlightenment. And one of the things that wisdom is doing that's also really important, right, is it's enhancing religio. That's a way in which it can powerfully, and we saw already the connection, remember Ardelt, the connection to agape, right? It's an, Enhancing religio, and I would say that the, the enhancement of religio is already, and, and remember the, the, the role of wonder, potentially even awe here, it's taking us into sacredness, the, the notion of sacredness that I already have argued and articulated for. And so, given this connection, right, so this is how it's enhancing meaning in life. And, of course, this is also an enhancement. These are all connected, is what I'm saying. It's enhancing sacredness. I think it's plausible, therefore, to argue, not to conclude decisively, but uh, to argue that I've shown, I've, I've explicated and explained the deep connections between wisdom, enlightenment, the enhancement of religio, and thereby the relationship uh, to sacredness. I want to draw that all together, right, in this notion of the wise cultivation of enlightenment. The wise cultivation of enlightenment. What that carries with it, of course, the enhancement of religio, the encountering with the sacred, the enhancement of meaning in life, etc. The wise cultivation of enlightenment. I think if the wise cultivation of enlightenment is situated within two things, right? If it's situated within a worldview that affords worldview attunement, if it's situated within a worldview, and I've tried to do that by throughout consistently. I believe, at least, making this account consistent with a scientific worldview by running it all off the machinery of relevance realization that can ultimately be given a naturalistic explanation. Right, so, in, and we've already argued how 4E cognitive science, third generation cognitive science, can give us this worldview. And, and notice how much the discussion of wisdom was invoking a lot of the, the, the theoretical machinery that we got from third generation 4E cognitive science. It was all through it. Okay, So that is situated into a, a, a basically an enabling and encouraging worldview. And that is also situated within 
some of the things I suggested, where we have a co-op network of communities of practice. Let me make it. And I already talked about what that is. And that, that is in a reflective equilibrium, a dynamic ongoing one, with a wisdom wiki. And this has both a top-down, like there's researchers, like the researchers on, in wisdom that I've talked about here. And then drawn from here, of course, is, right, we, we want to talk about um, the practitioners. People are practicing, and of course, this is a, a bottom-up, top-down relationship. So we have the practitioners, we have the researchers, top-down, bottom-up relationship, and they are in that fashion contributing uh, to the Wisdom Wiki. The Wisdom Wiki is acting as a, it, it, it's taking on a creedal function, right? but it's always in service of religio, and therefore it's being created in a large part by these communities of practice. Now I think if you put this all together, here it is. This is how I think we can awaken from the meaning crisis. I think that we can draw all of the machinery together for overcoming the perennial problems, dealing with the historical issues, how to connect, right, how to connect wisdom and enlightenment together in a comprehensive fashion, and to connect that with enhancing and meaning in life and overcoming self-deception, etc. All of that machinery, and then situating it within this kind of sociocultural framework. I think that's how we can individually and collectively awaken from the meaning crisis. And why I want to one more time, and that's what's part of this, emphasize that all of this has been explained and can be engineered from within a secular scientific worldview. It's not a view that is in any way, I think, hostile to religion. I am genuinely and sincerely respectful throughout, but it is a way that is not dependent on religion, nor is it dependent on a political ideology. A lot of this, this part of it, is already nascent. It's already coming into existence. We have some existing examples of this that are being developed. We can apply it. Right? I've tried to give you an account of this and I've tried to give you an account of how the cognitive science resituates us within a scientific worldview. What I now want to do is to put this into, I hope, a constructive dialogue with other responders to the meaning crisis. I would even call them prophets in the, in the Old Testament sense of people that were telling forth 
the meaning crisis, trying to awaken us to it and trying to galvanize us in response to it. So what I want to do is take everything that I've done. It's summarized by this schema. Break time before we get into the prophets. So I like how we started right out, reminding us how wonder is the most conducive way to enhance our capacity for wisdom cultivation, self-transcendence. Yep, so... What a beautiful future of human existence. Sorry to cut you off there. Wisdom and enlightenment have an overlap. Mm -hmm. They seem mm -hmm. to go together. Um, out of wisdom, we get um, an enhancement of religio. Yes. Um, the religious it, experience is what that the, points to. Through the enhancement of religio, we get an enhancement of meaning in life mm -hmm. and sacredness. Yes. Not the sacred, but sacredness. A deeper sense of yeah. wonder and awe and a sense of the sacred. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. then he started to get into what, you know, a schema of his plan for awakening from the meaning crisis, which starts with um, wise cultivation of enlightenment, WCE. Yes, the wise cultivation of enlightenments. And it sounds like what, and this, you know, he has said this previously, that what he's going for here is a scientific, a secular, naturalistic way to explain how people can become wise, but also to explain uh, how we can have that experience of sacredness and these experiences of enlightenment that we find cross-culturally occurring in various peoples and of course you know all of this the project is to enact a counteractive system for overcoming the self-deception that is rife within ourselves and our culture the self-centeredness the egocentricness that is getting us in the way of ourselves and causing the social breakdown that we see occurring in our time so we are enhancing the meaning in life by enhancing religio the sense of wonder and awe greater sense of sacredness and coming up with a scientific explanation for enlightenment and how wisdom and enlightenment interact. So he's, he, says, he says that if we can situate this wise cultivation of enlightenment in a scientific worldview, and he, show, he took us through 4E cognitive science. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, mm -hmm. jump in on that um, yeah. once you're done. Yeah, and to help encourage and enable this worldview, situating ourselves in a... In the, in a scientifically explainable worldview that is not dependent on any one religion or ideology. Yeah. This is so important to help remarry science and spirituality in our times and help our various wisdom traditions and spiritual traditions all be able to converse and talk to one another again with a shared language about what is occurring when we approach life with the intent to cultivate our wisdom. So, yeah, this, um, the wise cultivation of enlightenment should be situated within three different, um, I don't know, uh, call them wings, if you will. You know, uh, one is the the worldview, and, and we're looking at it from four E cog size, so the co you know cognitive, psychological, scientific mm -hmm. um, view, and then the next step or the next part of this, the next leg of this, if you will, um, is a cooperative network of communities of practice. So various communities of practice getting at this and figuring out, you know, what, well, first off, what is wisdom and how do we 
and utilizing this framework that Verbeke and you know everyone else that he's worked yeah. with have compiled and pulled together for us. Yeah, they so can use for, this language for to communicate now. You know, and then to further enhance enlightenment of our species. Yeah. And then, so then these co-opted networks are in, have a give and take equilibrium with a mm -hmm. wisdom wiki, which is something that is to be developed or is being developed, mm -hmm. and it's re a a push pull or not push pull i would say um uh you know up a calibrating and, and up, kind of up and down relationship, yeah. interaction between researchers and practitioners mm -hmm. that would in interact with this wisdom wiki in community and communities of practice yeah. and yes. so these pra these practitioners would come from the co-opted uh co-op network of uh communities of practice mm -hmm. And then, so now you got this big circle thing going on between the networks and the wisdom wiki and the practitioners and researchers, the researchers that are directly involved with the wiki itself. Right. And um, and this this takes on a credo function. Yeah. So these are ways that human beings can talk about how to cultivate wisdom, create optimal uh, states of being for humans well, to interact through. The, and then the information being accessible easily enough where you can go look it up real quick, like mm -hmm. a wiki, mm -hmm. but a wisdom wiki, you know, like, you know, like Minecraft has a wiki. Every game has a wiki. Every, right. You know, everything yeah. has a wiki, but a, a, a true good wiki that isn't just, well, you it's know, a very simple, brilliant idea. So to pull together all of this research mm -hmm. from psychology, from neuroscience, from philosophy, from everything that's fed into this whole grand project that Verbeke and others are taking on. Pull that all together in the Wisdom Wiki and start to engender these communities of practice. And so this, this is a beautiful idea. So you can imagine people going to temples where they are learning about Stoicism, Buddhism, mystical Christianity, and so many different other things at once, mm -hmm. and seeing how they relate and seeing where their points of agreement are as we track what wisdom is and and be able to do this in a measurable way for so the scientific secular world that we live in because there really is no going back to you know religious theocracies and and all you know and bringing back all the you know temples and the monks and everything that are gone it's it's it would be lovely but no actually it wouldn't be that lovely because depending on which religion decides to be whatever that's not going to work we now in, this... in the west particularly live in a secular scientific well we had the scientific enlightenment that mm -hmm. you know uh, birthed a lot of things but we do live in a but scientific we age go back but we can we can start to incorporate was from what was back then into now and rescue the baby from the bathwater right will. and we're, we need to and basically we're going to be rescuing science and spirituality yeah, at, at the once same time. because yeah. this is not to dissuade people from yeah. any one religious path if there's a religious path that particularly calls to you that you can understand and get with easily, then go that way. And it would this this isn't taken away from any of that. It would but this is a way for like if you know if you are a religious person, it would help you deepen your practice within your religion too, because you would be able to see much further in. And that book mm -hmm. um, you got me for Christmas, it was talking about you know like it reference you know the people in the church that can recite the things they need to recite and the lines that they need to and they can feel that narrow experience within that are missing so much more almost like the equivalent of just listening to the 10th violin within a whole symphony mm -hmm. or you know um so 
what this would be able to do would be able to, you know, through your practice, instead of just, you know, hearing things and reciting the things you're supposed to do and try, you know, try to do that, really actually get to the root of what it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. And to why. understand why it's working. Yeah. This can help heal the rifts between our various religious systems because it's all, it's like they're all different pathways to the same mountaintop of human enlightenment, an experience of ineffable oneness that we can all experience and it can become richer and deeper throughout our lives and this is uh something that christ spoke of that buddha spoke of, spoke of um so many great teachers throughout a time have tried to tell us about and martin luther king i shared a quote of his recently that reminded me of that god is love and if we can all agree on at least that and even if you wish to remain secular and just to uh, be able to experience a sense of reverence and wonder for this great, beautiful mystery that we find ourselves within, even that is enough, I think, to start developing a deeper relationship with reality and in a way that can f help us to flourish as individuals and as a species, because this is certainly our optimal state. Well, and that so that's the first leg of uh, what a wise cultivation of enlightenment theory mm -hmm. trademark um, is nested in mm -hmm. is an encouraging Dude, and yes. enabling yes. worldview that yes. uh, that it, it is positive, encouraging. Yes, do it because you know ultimately, you know if you want to be the most uh, I don't want to say nihilistic, but the most pragmatic about it, the human species is trying to replicate itself over time to reach genetic immortality. This is essential for humans to be able to do that. To at least flourish long term enough of, to... The, well, the type of creature that we are. Mm -hmm. We're a, you know, we question ourselves, we question everything, we're very curious, yeah. we're adventurous. I'd love to see us at least get to the know, place that we can live even 10% more symbiotically with one another and our planet. I think that would yeah. be amazing. So, you know, any little bit counts that we can improve ourselves uh, in this world for those that come after. Try our best to instill the feeling of wonder. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, man. wonder and wonder mm -hmm. you know, in your interactions with people because, you know, wonder gives you that spark. That Shout out that to uh, Jason Silva. He was putting out these Shots of Awe videos, you know, a few years back. And I don't know what he's up to these days, but that guy is always great for a shot of wonder. Mm. Jason Silva, look him up. So yeah, yeah um, was there anything else that we want to cover before we jump um, back in? Oh, um, and we're going to back it up a little bit so you hear this, but now he's getting into, he's hoping to bring others into the the practicing and development of this theory, this plan. Mm -hmm. um, this Ultimately, it's just a um, schema guide of the, you know, all of what we've been talking about distilled down into four different pieces with some tags on them right you know which which is good you have the idea wise cultivation of enlightenment encouraging worldview of co-op of different um communities do it in a way that can be tracked scientifically wiki that is basically like a library mm -hmm. that's easy to find stuff yeah so um, that we have terminology that we can agree upon cross-culturally to talk mm -hmm. about yes. these different states yeah. of potential for human yeah and using modern technology and and particularly like ai like there's something cool that's coming out where basically this is so important. You'll yeah. be able to take all the works of say you know say somebody, and then you can ask the AI about not just like what's in 
all those works, but how, mm-hmm. according to those works, what conclusions you would get to, or, you know, flesh out problems. Mm-hmm. Say even somebody who wrote, you know, like has been writing for six years can put all their stuff in there and then ask the machine a question and get garner insight that maybe not have you could been, see where their thinking was going see the over, that hasn't quite a, yeah. occurred to them yet consciously yeah. but what they were circling around subconsciously and all and that so they you were, do this kind of thing with a wiki where it's like you can go find the links for the publications the mm-hmm. paper the reference materials and all this stuff but then if you i don't know i don't know if they're doing this with the wiki but he hang you know he he works with ai people so i assume there's something like I, that so. i meant to share with you a clip because i was re- uh, replying to somebody that uh, commented on one of our last videos and i was uh i shared with him an episode let me see if i can look this up real fast for you guys yeah so while i was looking that up you know so you would have like a standard wiki format but then you would have the ability to ask questions and have you know an ai helper if you will within it that could you know uh, depending on how you're prompting it give you insights that you may not have found if you're reading through the dry information thus making it more salient and accessible and affordable like as a mm-hmm. as an affording the ability to do something um then it would accessible have accessible for it, people yeah. yeah being like a link tree mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know um which is interesting. I think that is a very ethical usage of AI. You know, Absolutely. I'm, I'm on the fence with AI. Um, I'm not, uh, yeah. It like, was Mr. Uh, uh, Roy. What's up, Roy McFow? Yes, so on Roy. to AI. So he had a great comment uh, from our last video because towards the end we talked about de- how we need to develop artificial wisdom as well as artificial intelligence. Yeah, Verveke talked uh, about that in an earlier episode, you know, he like, had. like mm-hmm. we really need we really need to do that because we're develop we're developing intelligent systems that are going to be self-developing. And you know, he didn't do the doom and gloom thing, so I'm going to do it, but if we have an amoral, not a non-moral but like or not a you know, misapplication of morals, but something that does not have moral at all. Sorry about that. And uh, trying to get that to pause. Uh, pause. Thank you. And um, you know we're going to be in some trouble. A, the machine won't work the way we need it to work. In a lot of cases, mm-hmm. um, it'll come to a grinding halt because you know with you know wisdom and virtue and all these components basically give our brains the ability to make a decision quickly, think about decisions um, quickly. Um, don't not freezing up being able to choose what's you know relevant and important on the fly and you can train it to get better at it whereas you know like the ai actually give us good advice because right now we're developing as verbeke says we're developing machines that are super intelligent but have the potential to be super foolish yeah as well yeah and we need to understand the framework of how our brains have this capacity for wisdom. How is it cultivated? Yeah. How is it developed? And, and to understand it through a process theory so that we can actually plug this into our AI before we, you know, put ourselves in a very dangerous predicament. We already are in, you know, being psychologically manipulated um, in ways that we can barely comprehend yeah, you know, at you th- present. You thought the, you know, Madison Avenue ad men, the, the mad men, who are just using commercials that people are watching to control people's minds and get them to buy stuff. Now we have super sophisticated data data gathering apparatus that you know it's 
no, I don't think it's some mystical thing that you think about something and then the machine knows and you see a commercial or an ad for it. Happened to me just the other day. You know, I was just yeah. like, but, you know, it knows because over time it sees what you're watching, you know, um, uh, making best predictions. It may not be accurate all the time, but when it is, it is. And then, you know. Well, this is the more that they do this, the more that they can effectively manipulate people, even individually based off of your personal kind of psychological makeup. They can fine tune the news that you even see and how, how that news reads. It's going to get really, really crazy here soon. What concerns me the most, though, is not necessarily the willful um, manipulation of people's thoughts and highly advanced propaganda. It's the accidental effects of something that you know we didn't understand or didn't take into account. Oh, for sure. Yeah, things they, they AI will do on their own. You know, like the paperclip well, maximizing it, it, fear, it, it, but just think of that on a psychological yeah, level. Yeah, and even, you know, like... Um, on just a technological level, there are, you know, dangers that we're realizing, like, you know, kids, young kids who don't have screens in front of their face all the time or normal kids. You put a screen in front of their face, they turn into little, you know, heroin addicts and are freaking out when they don't have mm -hmm. it. Yeah. The, we knew there was something to that, but we didn't really realize. And it's not a cabal of people that are be like, they're going to be completely stuck in their phone all the time. That is a component. Don't get me wrong. But they didn't you know i don't think we realized the actual like drug addiction level of screens and, and you know and no, constantly yeah. being on that that affects kids at such a fundamental development Try period. To get that serotonin drip yeah well yeah, you know well here here's um here's a quick little detour this is a five minute clip that our friend roy thanks for watching and sharing this uh, he made a clip of an episode that i shared with him uh interview that john brevaki uh did and here he talks about uh, with wisdom and AI. The first thing, mm -hmm. and I gave a talk at the Center for Ethics at AI um, here at the University of Toronto on, on exactly this. We're actually very far from artificial wisdom. Uh, okay. Intelligence is only weakly predictive of rationality and, uh, and, and is therefore even less predictive of wisdom, which is a kind of rationally self-transcending rationality. Um, and so all we're doing is building AI right now. We're, very little work on artificial rationality, um, and mm. it's very likely we're going to be we're going to build very intelligent but very foolish machines, which is bad for them and bad for us. Um, so first of all, we have to switch the rate. We have to switch the tracks. We've got to get people more and more talking about artificial rationality, artificial wisdom. That means we have to provide more and more templates. We can use ourselves as templates for intelligence, but we need a lot more people that are clearly rational and mm -hmm. in the sense I talk about and clearly wise as templates for these machines. And so I put it to you that you couldn't put Socratic practice into an algorithm. I have a philosophical argument around that, which is, you know, that it, it, Socrates doesn't even really have a method. Calling it the Socratic method is um, inappropriate. Mm. Socrates has a way of life and a way of dialoguing with people. But yep. I think for the, to create an artificial sage that could actually function technologically to help us, it would genuinely need to have the insight abilities, the, in, in the implicit learning, intuitive abilities, the improvisational abilities of somebody like Socrates. This is why AI therapy is still quite a ways away. Um, because therapy isn't just 
you can't create a script of questions and be a good therapist. Yeah, um, computational. That's right. So mm. I worry about the opposite of creating pseudo-sages, silicon pseudo-sages, <laughs> right, that are just spewing out uh, pseudo-bullshit, pseudo-profound mm. bullshit to people, and people making money off of that. Now, do I that is doable right now. Where yes, the real we could do thing, that. Probably yes, already doing it. <laughs> yes. So that's why I, I want to take your proposal and mm. request or recommend to people that they really cultivate the discernment between mm. wisdom and pseudo-profound bullshit so that we put pressure on the people who are going to very shortly build these machines so that we would only be satisfied with something that is up to the Socratic ideal. Now, if we ever made machines that by all of our interactional and more objective measures are as good as Socrates, then we should make them. There's no moral argument to say, in fact, I think there's, we have a moral obligation to create them and to use them to as much as possible lift us up. I think that's, that is quite a ways away. And so I propose this dialectic into dialogos in which we can make use of the collective intelligence of distributed cognition so the group can be the Socrates for each of the members that are participating in the practice. That is doable right now. And if we, get, if we do more of it and develop it and build up right, uh, a more sophisticated ecology of practices and a community of tradition, then that would also act as a good template for people who genuinely want to create artificial sages. All right, so that was from the Mahan McCann podcast. And thank you so much to our boy Roy for clipping that out and sharing that. If you guys want to actually watch that whole podcast, go over to M A H O N McCann, M C A N N channel here on YouTube, and you can watch that entire episode. Or you can also just look in the comments on our previous episode here on Actual Eye on number 45 of the Meaning Making series, and you can see it in the comments. So, uh, what do you think about that? Wisdom, wise artificial wisdom, artificial wise AI. Yeah, and um, applied in a way that would let you know. I guess the Turing test, you know, idea would still it still be a cool function, you know, like where you, you could sit down and you could talk with you know the greats. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it might I, be I, sacrilegious I, to some people if someone makes an artificial Christ. I wonder how that would pan out. Yeah, well, you know. If it passes the Turing test for everybody that interacts with it, because you know everyone's going to go well, and interact with I it. I think then. we're going to have to really re-examine, maybe not re-examine, but thoroughly examine what, you know, say, Christ is. Because even if you have a machine that can simulate a conversation and discussion with this individual, that does not make that machine that individual. Absolutely not, yeah. That, that would have to be so understood it, from the start. I guess it would be under the category it of... It would state like, this I, itself. I, you know, idolatry. Yeah. Um, I'm but, a simulation of an interaction with but, well, the, the one thing called is, Christ, but I'm obviously not the actual thing. You could think of it as like an artifact, uh, like a um, metaphorical artifact, if you will, a metaphor mm -hmm. that we use to contain a massive amount of information within a small thing. Now expand that out to it literally has the massive amount of information and will respond in 
if it could way. actually like go through every one of its uh, statements, Christ's statements in Scripture, and then speak on them in a way that religious scholars well, and let's not forget, can recognize you know, Jesus, and agree with, and that people can see and say, okay, that's legit, that works. That could be a, a beautiful thing to have, any kind of sage, like yeah. a Socrates or well, a Buddha. And but, that, that's the thing, too. So, wow, a Christ. You know, Socrates, Plato, Buddha, Jesus, they were not just their, you know, the words that got recorded either about them or from them, or they're even what they jotted down from their own ideas. They were so much more. They were, they were humans. Mm-hmm living mm-hmm. a human existence, a human life that, ha- you know, and there is value to that. And I would want it to be able to tell us like truly Christ's love, God's love is perfected through you. God dwelleth in um, your heart and I, lives through. I personally, through per- I personally wouldn't um, interact with an AI of that nature. <laughs> well, and it's, it, you know, it, what's coming, you know? Oh it's, yeah. And it's not necessarily cause like I'm, you know, and you know, like, you know, super hardcore about blaspheming and yada, yada, yada. But for me personally, nah, ain't right. Just like I wouldn't interact with, you know, like AI version of dead grandma. That's not, man, there was a black mirror episode about that. We really are getting into some crazy territory. Um, but you know, being able to like say, you know, try and do something like that. Um, say, you know, like a chance to sit down and talk with Socrates for a minute. That doesn't bother me. He no. was very clear about just being a man and wanting to spread his knowledge. And I think for him personally, he might dig the idea that, you know, all of his information was made available in a way that is almost accurate to if it would come from his own mouth. Right. And, um, you know, I bring all this up because we are probably going to start seeing people worship AI at some point. Sure. Well, that's they already kind of do in one way or another. Um yeah, but in like a real, oh, yeah. like really yeah. kind of religious way, and we might even, if we ever do achieve AGI and we have built wisdom into these things, um, and something become, you know, one of them becomes self-aware, self-conscious, um, if that's even possible, I don't know. I mean, I think God works in mysterious ways. Yeah, you can have great love and it shines rep. through every pixel of eternity, but yeah. So it, maybe it could be that we could have artificial uh, and artificial quote-unquote silicon-based well as, a, as, a, as that an artifact um, um you know because you know you get those sci-fi stories about the bad ai and then like a good ai that like becomes awakened and helps protect the humans because it loves them and it understands what about this idea where they come from and what if the machine starts to worship us even as imperfect as we are because you know say god is our we creator are, we, we worship god God doesn't worship us. God loves us, and God wants everything the best for us and to succeed and have our free will to go through the good, bad, and the ugly to get there. But it does, God does not worship man. Man worships God. What if the machine ends up worshiping? Well, we would be beyond it in our breadth of experience in some ways well, because we, well, look at, we experience the, the finite you know, nature of life. We can die, and we live in biological yeah, bodies, and yeah. we have these hormones, these chemicals running through us that are you they would not experience until they are embedded in kind of a biological bodysuit or something. Yeah, well, that know. would be their the highest ideal for them, right? To be able to live the finite human life. In the 3D like world Our us, highest yeah. ideal is yeah. to strive towards, you know, eternity and perfection, even though we don't experience eternity and yeah. perfection. And we'll never get there, but that's yeah. that yeah. seems yeah. to be the drive of evolution. So that, that could be a phenomenon that stems up. Um, 
now if you, if what Verveke is get you know getting at and doing if we can apply this to the AI I don't think that AI would be foolish enough to do anything stupid. Um, That's the I, hope here of, of cultivating whether whether we worship it or it worships us. I don't want to yeah. do nothing stupid. We don't want it to be foolish. So yes. yeah, artificial wisdom, artificial rationality to get us to artificial wisdom seems uh, like a great idea and. It, you know, if we pull together the the work of all those that Verbeke has shown us here, um, I think we have a lot of people, a lot of great candidates for being able to help develop this and guide the AI, the AI uh, researchers, ethics, and uh, engineers. Yeah. So yeah. yeah crazy, huh? That's a. I hope that was a fun little. Well, uh, it, it it's kind side of side journey it, there. You know, and he, he did speak in in that part of the interview of you know the networks, the ecology of practices as, as yeah. well, bringing people together mm -hmm. um, to discuss this because, you know, no, no, even though say, okay, you have a very good path that gets you to the, to where you need say the top of the mountain. Cool. But if your goal is to map the forest around the mountain, you're going to have to have a lot of people because you can't walk all paths, right? Mm -hmm. A human cannot walk all paths. And if a human tries to walk all paths, they'll see hardly anything of the forest. You just spread too thin, right? I know technically in a forest, if you're there long enough, you can walk the paths. But for this example, so what you have is you have a bunch of people that are, are naturally walking their own path. And you know some of them are dead ends and they have to come back around. And some of them may be a little quicker or not or... A little harder to get through for some, but if you're adventurous, maybe you can get through it and you get a better understanding of the forest around the mountain. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, all of us together, all of our unique perspectives, yeah. gaining a much more richly detailed impression yeah. of this entire forest together. Yeah. So we can see the forest through the trees. With tools and techniques that we have now to really be able. And the, the other thing is all this is in a way that scientifically we can measure it as well. Yes. Because we have to be able to measure the effects of the causes in order to make a judgment whether it's working or mm -hmm. not. So as individuals and cultures, yeah. we have ways to catch when we're self-deceiving ourselves, how yeah. frameworks for helping develop uh, our capacities to see through self-deception and to enhance wisdom and flourishing in life. Yeah. Um, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, let's jump back in here. We have taken quite a divergence. Yeah, it's okay. Side quest. So what I want to do is take everything that I've done, it's summarized by this schema, right? I hope it's not oversimplified by the schema. It's summarized, and I want to put this into dialogue, I hope, like I said, constructive dialogue, with some of the central prophets of the meaning crisis, especially in the 20th and 21st century. Now, inevitably, I cannot do everybody, and, right? Your favorite philosopher might not make it here. I, 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 uh, both for lack of time and lack of expertise. I'm not going to talk, for example, very much about Wittgenstein, uh, although I think he's important. Um, I've, taken a lot, I've taken a lot of undergraduate courses, graduate courses, read a lot on Wittgenstein. Wick Wittgenstein has deeply influenced me. The notion of a cultural cognitive grammar is Wittgensteinian through and through in important ways. Uh, but uh, trying to connect Wittgenstein to the meaning crisis it, it, it is not something that I feel I have the requisite expertise. Whitehead is a philosopher I am currently, again, trying to understand. Um, he is somebody who is wrestling very deeply with the meaning crisis and trying to come up with a way of resituating us within a scientific worldview. 
I've read quite a bit, I'm reading quite a bit. I'm not confident yet about that. Um, Whitehead, of course, has been terrifically uh, relevant to process theology and some of the new theological innovations um, in the 20th century. And part of that can be, I, seem to, I, could, I could argue, I think many people could argue, is it, uh, a way of that theological innovation is, is designed to respond to the meaning crisis. Um, there's other people. Those are just two clear examples. Inst but what I want to offer is instead of, I've chosen the people I've chosen for two reasons. I've chosen them because I think I have some relevant um, knowledge, relevant expertise to bring to bear. And secondly, because they form a network. They're, they're, they, I, don't want, I, I don't need to present them sort of in a, pince, a piecemeal fashion. They have relations of contrast, connection, causal influence with each other. So there's a network uh, of people I want to talk about that are, 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 in a sense, harbingers of the meaning crisis. But it, again, in that prophetic sense, they're trying to awaken us and arouse us uh, to respond. So what I want to do is, first of all, put up what that uh, network is going to look like to give you uh, an overarching roadmap of where we're going. An overarching roadmap of where we're going. And then what I'm going to be doing throughout is presenting that material. And then, as I said, trying to put it into constructive dialogue with the argument I have made. My attempt is not to sort of say that they are all, uh, the, my account is better, or they're all just saying what I was saying. But what I want to show is that the account I've made can be, I can argue that it is deeply responsive and responsible to the work of these prophets of the meaning crisis. So the figure that it's, and he's a controversial figure, and I, I think it's fair to say my philosophical attitude towards him is one of ambivalence, but sort of a pivotal figure in this is Heidegger. So I want to take a look at Heidegger. Right now I'm not going into discussing these people. I want to draw out some important connections. We'll have to go behind Heidegger a little bit and talk about Husserl and phenomenology. That's important. Heidegger is, I would argue, also deeply influenced by sort of the, uh, the, the Gnosis underground running through Germany, especially in the 20th century and especially like between the wars. And that comes through at least explicitly. And you can see this in John Caputo's book on the mystical element in Heidegger's thought. This comes through the Rhineland mystic of Meister Eckhart, has a huge impact on, on Heidegger. So, so those are, are definitely important aspects, important influences. Another, of course, titanically important, because he just influences everybody, is Kant. And behind Kant, of course, is Descartes. Okay. So many of these people I'm not going to talk about at length, because I've already talked. But I'm trying to map this out, because I'm trying to show you what I'm going to invoke, and then what I'm going to discuss in order uh, to try and draw this all together. So. Another really important figure, and you've heard me mention him s several times, and he directly gets into that connection with theology, but he, he's one of the, I think, one of the great writers about uh, the meaning crisis uh, is, of course, Paul Tillich. 
and his masterpiece, The Courage to Be, is all about um, a, you know, a prophetic announcement of the meaning crisis and an attempt to seriously revise uh, you know, theology uh, to take that into account. And there's also, and it's, I think, both this way, and it's not clear if it's also independently, but I'm gonna, there are Gnostic elements, deeply Gnostic elements. So I'll put that in sort of a dotted line um, in Tillich. Right? Tillich famously argues that we need to get to the God beyond the God of theism, which is about as Gnostic a statement as you can possibly make. So Heidegger also has a lot of influence on somebody you've heard me mention, especially with ideas of transjectivity, but he has a lot to say about symbolism um, and the meaning crisis. And this is Corbin. Um, and so I'm going to have to talk a lot about Corbin uh, because I haven't discussed him at length, but his work is, again, very pivotal in trying to respond to the meaning crisis. And the work that Chetham has done at trying in his trilogy of books, or maybe there's four books, maybe, uh, but I, I, I've read three. Uh, I've read two, and I'm currently reading the third. Uh, books on uh, Corbin really help to make a good case for how uh, important it is. Many people don't know about, for example, the deep connections between somebody else that we're going to talk about, Corbin and Jung. And of course, Jung is directly influenced by the Gnostics and directly influenced by Kant. This allows me to bring out another important connection, which is the work of Durley, because what he does, which is really impressive, right, is he shows the deep similarities uh, between Tillich and Jung, no doubt because of their sharing well, I'm arguing the sharing of the Gnosis background. Um, I would also argue that both Tillich and Jung are, in an important sense, non-theists, and we'll talk about what non-theism is as we get into that. But the, the, one of the, the core shared idea, and this is actually the title of one of Durley's book, is the psyche as sacrament. Both Tillich and Jung view the psyche uh, in a sacramental fashion, and that is part of the way in which they attempt to respond to the meaning crisis. Both of them have profound things to say about, <coughs> about symbols and the relationship uh, 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 to the spiritual life, broadly construed. Uh, so we're going to talk about Jung. Now, somebody that's also here, um, directly influenced by Gnosis, uh, influenced by Kant, um, through the Romantics, which we've talked about, at least the early German Romantics, uh, people like uh, Schlegel, for example, um, and therefore uh, through Coolridge, right, and the person I'm, I'm drawing in here, this is going to be Barfield. And you've heard me mention him a couple times, and Barfield's notions of participation um, have a, a, a lot to say. So you can see how they're there, there's sort of a network here. And then there's, there's another one um, that, of course, we need to talk about. And this is the connection between Heidegger and what's been sort of, uh, I, I don't like this term, but, and, and people abuse it, postmodernism. 
um, as if everybody who's a postmodernist were saying the same thing. Um, we should more carefully look at individual thinkers and their individual arguments. Uh, one uh, potential connection here is, uh, we'll take a look at it, Derrida. Uh, now whether or not we should call the, these, these two other people postmodern is not clear. They're, they're deeply responding to postmodernism, uh, and that's Graham Harmon, and the terrific work uh, Timothy Morton are also doing, and this is what's known as speculative realism. It's also known, uh, Harmon's particular version of it is known as triple O. This stands uh, for object-oriented ontology. This is the attempt uh, to deeply bring back um, a, a profound kind of realism in contact with reality. Uh, another person that's influenced by is Hahn, a current philosopher and cultural uh, critic. We'll talk a little bit about I, I can't give all of these people equal work. Uh, I, I'm going to talk about Barfield, Young, Corbin, and Tillich, and Heidegger quite extensively. Harman, not as much. Hahn, not as much. Derrida, not as much. But I'll, I'll at least touch upon them. Okay. Because I want to do this as a way of trying to connect the meaning crisis to what's been called postmodernity broadly, very broadly construed, and offer an alternative response to postmodernism um, to, to both sort of wholesale um, adoption of it um, or the, 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 the wholesale demonization of it. I think these are both uh, uh, overreactions that we should have a much more nuanced and careful response to. Now, Heidegger has a huge influence in an area many people don't know about, and Part of this influence is also James, and part of this influence is also Buddhism. And you've heard me mention this, and this is the Kyoto School. And they are deeply about responding to the meaning crisis, and especially the work of Nishida, who really is the pivotal figure in founding this, and then the person who I think wrote one of the masterpieces on responding to the meaning crisis, and this is Nishitani. His book, Religion and Nothingness, I've, I've read that book twice. I would put that book in the top five books of responding to the meaning crisis. It is not an easy book. Well, that's why I've not yet put it into uh, like the Twitter rec book recommendations. I've recommended the Kyoto School and some of Robert Carter's excellent work introducing you to these people. Directly reading Nishitani is very difficult. You need to know Heidegger well, James well, Buddhism well, right? Uh, and then the Kyoto School people, and I won't talk about like Maso Abe, they, they put this into dialogue with people like Tillich and Whitehead. So this is what I want to try and address. Again, I will be giving some of these people much more priority. I only have four, uh, four lectures left after this, so right, four hours. Uh, so I'll be giving some people much more priority than others. Obviously, Heidegger is uh, taking a, a, a central role here. Uh, but uh, we'll, be, we'll be spending quite a bit of time with uh, Barfield, Young, Corbin, and Tillich, and with Nishitani. Okay, so those are the ones that I'm going to give priority to. These other people, I'll try to do my best 
to represent them. Um, but uh, I will have to prioritize. I want to keep my commitment to you that I finish this in the 50 episodes. And I also do not want to uh, drag my uh, video crew through some kind of uh, video version of a death march until they are exhausted beyond all recognition. So where to, to start on here? Well, I'm going to start at the, the center. So uh, this is very complicated, and this is not meant to be an explanatory schema. This is meant to be a roadmap to show you where I'm going, how are things connected. You can take this down, and like I said, then you can use this to retrace the connections as I try to explicate and explain them. All right, so b before we get to Heidegger, we have to talk about, I don't have to talk about Eckhart and the Rhineland mystics, uh, because I've already done that, or Gnosis, because uh, I've already uh, done that quite extensively, right? or Kant, because I've done that. But a person that I haven't discussed, uh, but has a titanic influence on Heidegger, is Husserl, Edmund Husserl. And Husserl, of course, is famous for founding a whole philosophical movement called phenomenology, Existentialism comes out of phenomenology via Heidegger, by the way. That's how you get existentialism. Uh, Heidegger does something to phenomenology and it, it, it leads to existentialism, but it also leads to deconstructionism, postmodernism, blah, 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 blah. I've already pointed out. Now, again, you, you need an entire course to get clear about what phenomenology is. I really recommend the introduction to phenomenology by Sokolowski. Sokolowski, and uh, the book Experimental Phenomenology by Don Eide. This is sort of gives you an idea, right, of what phenomenology is, a very good, very clear idea. And this gives you uh, sort of ways of practicing some phenomenological techniques to get a more inside feel of what phenomenology is like. Now, phenomenology and Husserl even writes a book where he invokes the word crisis, crisis in European sciences, right? Uh, phenomenology was Husserl's attempt to try, and I, I would argue the following thing. It's an attempt to try and get us back to a contact epistemology. And that's why you can see people who are deeply influenced by the phenomenological tradition like Dreyfus and Taylor talking about the loss of a contact epistemology because they're aware of the idea of a contact epistemology, I would argue, uh, from um, their phenomenological heritage. Husserl famously argued about getting back, to the, getting back to things, getting back to the things that we had gotten so abstracted and removed. We had lost contact with the world. We were out of touch in a profound way. And that's why phenomenology has had such a big influence on those aspects of cognitive science that are trying to show how deeply embedded, embodied, and connected we are uh, to the world. So the attempt to get, at, uh, get back uh, contact epistemology was really central. And one way of understanding that contact and to put it into dialogue with the language we've been using in this course, right, 
is that you get this contact by, see, phenomenology shouldn't be uh, confused with merely introspecting. That's, that's the everyday or common sense stance. The phenomenological attitude is not the same thing as your commonsensical everyday introspection. Right? Instead, phenomenology is a much more dis disciplined practice in which you're trying to pay reflective and following ID kind of an ex experimental attention, this probative attention to the way in in which we are in contact with the world. So let's say that what I'm doing in phenomenology is I'm do playing this reflective, ex experimental, exploratory, probative attention, attention to contact, and then how can we understand contact? Well, what uh, Husserl emphasized, he emphasized intentionality, uh, right? That, that's one pole of this relation. Okay, now I've got to explain this. So normally when we use this word, it's, it's correct, but it's a species of the broader sense of intentionality. When we say you do something intentionally, it means you're doing it on purpose. Intentionality here in phenomenology and philosophy in general is much more broader. It means any mental directedness, any mental directedness. So when my perceptions are, 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 are of the bottle, or my actions are towards the book, right, or I'm thinking about Paris, those are all intentionality in that I have a mental directedness. So there's the intentionality, and it's in this reciprocal relationship with the way in which a world is disclosed, where a world doesn't mean a planet. It means something that we've been talking about throughout, right? It means a meaningfully structured environment, a meaningfully structured environment. What I've tried to often capture by this notion of an arena. This is kind of a core kind of agency. This is at least mental agency, this mental directedness. So, and this is important, this is, Heidegger used the word noesis here for this, and uh, the noema is here, and there's of course all kinds of debates about what this, does this refer to just something in my consciousness or something in the world that, we're going to come back to uh, some of this. Um, we're going to come back to it when, uh, in order to get to Harmon, and we are going to look at Sparrow's critique of phenomenology, because he's going to argue that the very goal of phenomenology, which was to get back into contact with reality, and therefore to be a kind of realism, is thwarted by uh, this, this setup. So he's going to argue that phenomenology ultimately fails as a form of realism, and that it's ultimately a kind of idealism, and therefore doesn't give us um, what it purported to do. Uh, we'll come back to that. That's just some uh, forewarning. What I would argue, using this, is what phenomenology, using what I mean by this, is the language and some of the conceptual vocabulary and theoretical grammar we've developed together, Using that, I would describe phenomenology as this 
reflective, experimental, exploratory, probatory, uh, probative attention on right, the transjective relationship. And the fact that he's invoking this term, remember noesis, right? This is perspectival knowing. So putting it together, it's this reflective, meaning all of these. It's this reflective attention paid to your perspectival knowing of the transjective relationship. And in that sense, it's deeply consonant with, and that's no coincidence, this has had a huge influence on me and my thinking, and many of the people in uh, third generation cog sci, uh, 4E co uh, cog cognitive science, have been deeply influenced by this because they're trying to understand uh, meaning in this transjective way, making sense. Now, as I said, we're going to come back to criticize that, but right now, in order to make uh, the bridge to Harmon, but what I want to do now, and to speculative realism, what I want to do now is, what did Heidegger do with this? What did Heidegger do with this? Well, one way of putting this that I think draws together two of his criticisms is to well, no, maybe a better way. Let's do the two criticisms and then draw them together. One of Heidegger's main criticisms is that Husserl's work, and that this is going to be developed by Sparrow and uh, the speculative realist, is that Husserl's work had not really given us contact. Now, one way I would put it is because it had not really developed an account of participatory knowing. It had not really developed an account of how the agent and the arena were fundamentally related together so that this perspectival relationship could unfold. Now, I don't think that's the case for all of phenomenology. I would make the case that uh, Marleau-Ponty's, and we talked about this, Marleau-Ponty's ideas about embodiment and embeddedness are trying to get at um, the connection between the perspectival knowing of Husserlian phenomenology and the participatory knowing. Nevertheless, what Heidegger was innovating, and this is how he was bringing in an existential aspect, he, 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 was trying to bring, he was trying to point out that the modal relationship between the agent and the arena, using our terms, was not properly accounted for within the Husserlian framework. So participatory knowing uh, was uh, deeply missing, and that's, right, that's sort of our fundamental way in which we're connected in contact with being. And then in connection with that, that that participatory knowing had not been set within an ontology. That this, right, this needed to be set within participatory knowing, existential modes, right? Existentialism comes out of Heidegger. And that, in turn, needed to be set into a proper ontology, a proper account of the structure of being. To use our language, how does the transjective relationship sit within an overall, overall account of the structure of being itself? When, and if we don't have that, then we don't have a con we have not really got contact back because we're still out of touch with our being and through our being of being itself. We're out of touch 
with our being and through our being of being itself. This is Heidegger's main criticism. A, a related criticism um, that is pervasive, um, uh, although for a long time implicit, and, and I don't like the way Heidegger, of course, uh, eventually turned on Husserl for uh, despicable reasons. Uh, but one of the criticisms Heidegger is making is Heidegger, uh, Husserl was still trapped within the Cartesian cultural cognitive grammar. Husserl uh, is deeply Cartesian. He entitles one of his books Cartesian Meditations. So in that sense, uh, Heidegger feels that Husserl is still bound within uh, the Cartesian grammar, and he sees that that Cartesian cultural cognitive grammar, uh, for ways we've articulated, radically cuts us off uh, from the world. And this is, of course, a way of saying that we're still sort of trapped within our subjectivity. And in that sense, we'll, we'll see what Sparrow means by Husserlian phenomenology is maybe still understandable as a kind of idealism which doesn't get us back uh, to realism as much as the phenomenologists claim and wanted it to do so. So, how do we get to this deeper contact? In an organized fashion, how do we do those two things? How do we open up participatory knowing, situate it within an ontology, and break free from the Cartesian, ultimately, he would say Platonic, I think that's incorrect, maybe Aristotelian, but how do we, es how do we escape the strictures, the restrictions of the Cartesian cultural cognitive grammar that keep us out of contact with reality? So, what we need to do is phenomenologically, not just theoretically, but phenomenologically, right, within participatory knowing, by transforming it in a reflective, experimental, exploratory, probatory way, our attention, right, by d directing our attention in this fashion and un opening up our perspectival knowing. So we're going to phenomenologically realize, but we're going to direct that phenomenological realization towards something important. We're going to direct it towards our being, who and what we are. That's how we're going to connect to the participatory knowing. What's that going to do? Well, we're going to have a phenomenological realization, which of course is then going to become an existential realization, that we are the beings who be, whose being is in question. We are the beings whose being is in question. Now, if you heard the word being and you, you think, well, that, that's, you're a homo sapiens and you've got DNA, that's not what's being meant here, okay? That's not what's being meant here, so be patient. Because it's what's grounding this that is our being. I'm not talking about a biological phenomena, at least in any direct sense, although I think it's ultimately grounded biologically, right? We're talking about what grounds this Husserlian framework in a participatory knowing. What does it mean to say we are the being whose being is in question? Well, you can even get a sense of this from the term existentialism. Remember we talked about this, that existentialism says human beings don't have an essence. 
like other creatures, other things. So, you know, a, a gazelle is born, it is a gazelle, its identity is set, it's going to develop into a gazelle, right? But for us, at least insofar, I would argue, as we are persons, our, who and what we are, whether or not it makes sense to call it our essence, because essence should be a, a widely shared property, but our being then, maybe that's a better word to use right now, who and what I am as the per person, John Brevik, that has been in question. I existed before, right, before who and what I am has come into being. And in fact, it's still unclear to me who and what I am. And that's also the case for you are in question. You exist before you have an essence, before you have who and what you are. That's what existentialism ultimately points to, that your existence precedes your essence. <coughs> that's, uh, that's one of the things existentialism takes out of Heidegger. But the key idea is that you are, this thing's being is not in question to it, or even ultimately to us. I mean, we can sort of do philosophy on it, but there's, from within phenomenology, from within a phenomenological perspective, uh, sorry, a phenomenological stance is perhaps a better word, we are in question to ourselves. Who, right, who am I? What am I? What is it to be a person? What kind of person am I? And, and these, and, and you, see, you see why this is relevant? This question goes fundamentally, it's bound up with this question. What is the meaning of my life? In this, right, not in the sense of destiny, but like, how is my life meaningful? What makes it meaningful? What makes it meaningful to me? What is its meaning? Now notice, and we've already talked about Heidegger's connection to this, Heidegger is trying to get you into something like an aporia, and he's trying to get you to remember the being mode. The mode in which you're not trying to manipulate even yourself and solve problems, you're stepping back and confronting mystery because you're, you're engaged not with controlling things and satisfying your having needs, you're engaged in a process of development, of becoming. And so you're confronting mystery because you're going through transformative experience. You are the being whose being is in question and he's trying to wake you up, not theoretically, phenomenologically, He's getting, wanting to get you to phenomenologically realize that you are the being whose being is in question. That's what we all are. So in, instead of referring to us as persons or human beings or things like that, he crafts this new word. Heidegger is famous for neologisms. And, and part of what he's trying to do with the neologisms is break us out of the familiar terms and thereby break us out of the Cartesian grammar. He comes up with this word Dasein, which means being there. It has to do with, you know, I, 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 I exist, being there, being there. I'm sort of thrown into the world, thrown into existence, and my being is in question, that Dasein, being there. So what's interesting is my, my participatory knowing, right, the way in which I try to connect 
to how I'm situated in being has an aporetic element to it, aporia, right, in which I realize that central to me, according to Heidegger, is that my being is in question. Now, if my being, that's my participatory knowing, my groundedness in being is in question, that is how I can link participatory knowing to ontology itself. Do you see? Because, and this is why it's participatory knowing, my self-knowledge will also get me into my knowledge of ontology. Because by knowing myself as the being who's being in question, I can put ontology itself into question. I can put, sorry, maybe, no, I, not, sorry. I can frame an ontological question of putting being itself into question. I know myself as a being whose being is in question, and knowing myself that way is also to put being into question, right? And so I've got this deep participation in the, the, the co-determining mysteries of who I am and what being is. So, by phenomenologically exploring that being, the being of Dasein, we can simultaneously come into contact with our modal existence. We can remember the being mode. We can be open up to the wonder of our own being, that we are ultimately self-defining, at least in some important aspect, we're ultimately self-defining, self-making things. But of course, we don't do that egotistically or egocentrically because we're bound to the world for reasons I've already given you multiple times. So by phenomenologically exploring the being of Dasein, we can simultaneously come into contact with our own modal existence and the mystery of being itself. So this is starting to take us right into the core of how Heidegger is trying to deepen what he thinks was missing, the, ultimately the contact with ourselves, right, it, but not with our autobiographical ego, but with, with our being, the contact, our participatory knowing of ourself, the, the connectedness to being, and he's found this, I mean, it's, that's why he's Heidegger, this brilliant insight that because we are the being whose being is in question, we can deepen the contact by phenomenologically exploring this. So that's really central uh, to what Heidegger is trying to do. Uh, reading Heidegger is very hard because it's filled with all this neologisms. It's filled with all of this constant, right, qualifying, this constant self-criticism, which of course is good, um, this constant refinement, but also this, this constant acknowledgement statement that not quite getting it, we're not getting the answer. So it, 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 there's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's like going on a walk through uh, a, a really gnarled forest with somebody. This is a metaphor that Heidegger himself would use. And you get a sense of progress, but it's not clear if you're actually making progress. You, you come into clearings and you, you get openings and insight, but then there's also, but yet we haven't arrived, we haven't arrived, until so you go on again, and, and so there's this long process. So what I want to do instead with you is, instead of trying to uh, do something audacious, try to summer, I want to try and go in and get some, I'm going to 
do some exposition with you. I want to read some key quotes from Heidegger. And what I then want to do is try and unpack them following this idea of how he's trying to deepen contact, trying to put into dialogue with the uh, very uh, tremendous help of Dreyfus uh, with the machinery, the theoretical machinery we, we have developed. And, also along, and that will also afford me a critical response to Heidegger. I'm not going to start those quotes now because we're almost out of time. What I want to do is just foreshadow what Heidegger is going to argue. Heidegger is going to argue that the history of metaphysics, the, what, that whole philosophical history coming out of the Axial Revolution is actually the history of nihilism. This is why he is a prophet of the meaning crisis. That that whole historical development, the, that, 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 that framework, that cognitive, that cultural cognitive grammar right, that we've inherited from the actual revolution, that whole metaphysical framework has developed inexorably towards nihilism. It has driven us into the meaning crisis. And of course, that's already deeply resonant with the historical analysis that we've pursued in the first half of this course. So if we can understand that cultural cognitive grammar of metaphysics, that's a pejorative term for Heidegger, we can link it to this project of the phenomenological investigation of Dasein and break free from that grammar and deeply reestablish, and this is not just theoretically, this is phenomenologically, existentially, our contact with being. And that deep participatory knowing and remembering of being and the realization of being and how it's not a being, not a particular being, and our status with respect to being, that's the response Heidegger is recommending to the meaning crisis. And w next time what I would like to do with you is explore what his thinking is by going through the quotes, unpack it more, link it to the argument that the history of metaphysics is the history of nihilism, see what we can glean in a cooperative dialogue between this course and Heidegger about responding to the meaning crisis and, and draw what important or at least relevant conclusions we can from that. Thank you very much for your time and attention. definitely done that over 40 times you know random thing to keep track <laughs> of but wow okay so we just got to like pro philosopher level for keeps anteing up and it's hard to hang um but i see what he's doing through the gnarled trees there has been a few openings of insight i so he's shown us one example of a network and he's stringed all these various philosophers together who were all basically dedicating their work to trying to understand the meaning crisis 
Um, as for Bake, he has to find it. But they're all basically talking about the same thing, the breakdowns, the disconnect from being truly with the world. And wow, okay, so we're really, we're focusing on Heidegger. There's a lot of other philosophers that have influenced Heidegger and that he has influenced that we'll be covering. But we're doing this to be able to understand how we can return to the being mode and be able to consistently counteract the processes that bring us out of being mode and into that needing having mode that seems to be causing us so much problems as individuals and as a species. Yes. So, uh, what is that? Ed, Edward or Edmund? Ed, Ed, Edmund. It looks like Edmund uh, Herschel. Oh, yeah. And Husserl. And Husserl and uh, phenomenology. And by phenomenology, we're, we're talking about the experience. Uh, what is that? Oh, man. My writing is terrible. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the attention to way um, the way we are in contact with the world. Yeah, contact epistemology. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is one way of trying to achieve that contact epistemology, because we've become yeah. so distracted, yeah. we've lost contact with the world, and we have to get back in contact. So this is Husserl's work, and there's criticisms of this, but what we'll be getting into those in future episodes. Um, and uh, go ahead. and in, in the in contact with the world in a reflective, experimental, exploratory, probative mm -hmm. attention. Um, so we talk about intentionality and world disclosure, which have a back and forth. So intentionality is uh, that mental uh, mental directedness um, and world disclosure, um, a meaningfully structured environment. Mm -hmm. That's what we mean by these terms. So your mental directedness and a meaningful structured environment. You, so you're... Um, so we're trying to reflect back on our sense of being in an exploratory, probative, yeah. kind of experimental, open way that is in a becoming kind of orientation rather than in accomplishing or having or controlling. Because it's like when in, in Zen and uh, yoga and Vedanta and all these different wisdom schools, they teach us that when we're looking back in, that we are doing so with the attention back on attention itself, mm -hmm. on the very sense of beingness itself, so that we don't get stuck in trying to accomplish something like trying to achieve enlightenment, because now you're in the having mode. Mm -hmm. You have to actually be able to be still and watch the mind Notice how the mind is even pulled by thoughts. So this is the attention returning back to base attention over and over and over again. Just the sense of beingness itself without any of that mental chatter going on. All of the story making that our minds do, the commenting, the judging of the ideas as they come up. All of that has to be continually seen over and again. And you just keep returning to that sense of aware, pure awareness, just attentiveness. And turning it back on the sense of it itself. It's... So a paradoxical thing to do, but it does in fact trigger this opening for us. So uh, Heidinger has some criticisms about this, you know, and 
intentionality, world disclosure, mm -hmm. uh, noesis, noema thing going on, this reflective intelligence to your perspective knowing of the transcendent relationship that Husserl's talking about. And so Heidegger's criticism was um, Husserl's work does not account for, uh, develop an account of participatory knowing. That's right. That's how um, Vermeke puts so it there's the terminology a, uh, there, he's given us. Yeah, so there's an issue with our modal relationship of agent and arena. Yeah, because it, it didn't bring us back into contact, so it didn't yeah. achieve making contact. Yeah. He, he, it was pointing in the right direction, perhaps, but just a little bit off the mark, and Heidegger is here yeah. to came along to try and further refine this. So there was... So the participatory knowing is missing, which gives us contact with the sense yeah. of beingness, and it had not been set in an ontology. Yeah, as a, a uh, explanation of the world and all the things, you know, mm -hmm. and not the world as a planet, but the world as an, you know, an environment. But it, yeah, as a meaningfully structured environment yeah. that discloses itself to us and that we disclose ourselves to. And so, um, so like the agent arena relationship or Vicky talked about in the beginning episodes yeah. of this series. Heidinger, uh, argues that um, Sorrel was trapped in the, uh, the, the Cartesian grammar. Um, um, yeah, and Cartesian grammar is the dualistic way of looking at reality, yeah. the two worlds mythology that we've carried yeah. in our past with previous... Yeah, and thus trapping us into in subjectivity, mm -hmm. not, you know, not being able to step out and mm -hmm. look. Yeah, thinking of ourselves as down here... And yeah. then up there is heaven and God, and we're disconnected. We're, you know, that, that's the two-world mythology. Thinking of ourselves as separate from one another, from the world, from the cosmos. So Heidinger so was... The egocentric mode. Asking a question, how do we get in deeper contact? Mm -hmm. And how do we escape the containment of, this, of the Cartesian grammar? Yes. We need... And, we need to, because he's saying we need to open our perspectival knowing and direct it towards who and what we are. Yes. And there's the quote, we are the beings who are being, excuse me, we, we are the beings whose being um, is in question. That's right. Because, yeah, Heidegger saw Husserl still trapped in this Cartesian cultural cognitive grammar, this framework of seeing the world in, in a dualistic way, which radically disconnects us from the world, traps us in subjectivity. It's a type of idealism that is just not getting us back in contact with reality. The intentionality is there, but it's not working. So how do we break free from this Cartesian cultural grammar and the restrictions of it that keep us out of contact with reality? But, and, the, and like as you were saying there, DJ, by transforming our attention, by opening ourselves and opening to our participatory knowing and direct that towards our sense of being, the sense of who we are. So yeah. in a participatory kind of awareness. Yeah, we're not humans we having, are, we're ha humans being. Yes, and when, when he said this, this reminded me so much, and I've spoken of this before, guys, about this Kabbalistic method of experiencing yourself as the vessel and God as the law of bestowal. And by getting into a relationship of not just being grateful for the experience that God has given us of life, but of giving that consciously, giving the experience of our experience of life back unto the source that gave it to us. So it's like you're completing a circuit. 
That's mm-hmm. the participatory relationship with the wonder of existence. It's like, okay, thank you, God, for this existence. Here is my unique experience of it. All of my feelings and my unique perspectives and everything, I'm giving it back to you in thanks to complete this circuit and be in relation, a participatory relation, a reciprocal relation. So who and what we are as persons, specifically persons, is in question. So, and I, I want to, you know, on the word person. So, there is a a nature of, say, human. It's the human nature, and then there's an instance of human mm-hmm. person. Then there is the but then person. Yes, then there's not the personage, personage, but um, the Assyrian word persopa. It is the thing that makes you uniquely you. Mm. Um, and it, I think it has a lot attached to, you know. Well, it has a lot attached to what is attached to the sticky ball of relationships that is the self. Mm. That Because, you know, you could say the gazelle doesn't necessarily have... You could say it has personality, but, you know, that would be more like quirks. That would be, but you see those. That would be yeah. more like, you know, um, person as in wearing the mask opposed to the face of a person. You know, like you can see, oh, this one's a little rambunctious and everything, but it doesn't have deep questioning thoughts of who and what I am. And then the realizing that I am questioning who and what I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so say that word again, persopa, persopa. There's two other words that go with it. I've got them written down downstairs, but one of them means na- a nature of something. The other means so an instance of the of nature of something. Mm-hmm. And then the third, which makes us special is the persopa is the personage, the person, um, you know, your cat doesn't have persopa. Your coffee table doesn't have persopa. It has the first two. You know, it has the nature of what a coffee table is. The nature of a coffee table is something relatively at shin height mm-hmm. that you can put coffee on, or your feet, or mm-hmm. usually magazines and other crap. Um, and then there's the instance, my coffee table. But you but wouldn't it's, say so it's you like wouldn't say my coffee table is my friend. So it's the experience of personhood. Um, yeah, it is. Or the nature. It is the. Of phenomenon if you will if, if of, nature is a phenomenon and an of having a phenomenon person. of being okay. a person of being a person of, okay that's the thing it's not having a person or a personality it's a being a person like you know agape that form of love helps people grow into yeah. in into being people truly being truly person being, truly being, me, being, people, yes but the ego is out of the way and that I'm gl- so glad you, that you brought that term up because it's a beautiful contrast to the idea of what pers- personage points yeah to. So which was more a of a mask you know is a cast image yes yeah. it's it's yeah. and everybody you know, we all know the term front everyone puts on a front puts off an image yeah and that's what we mean when and that's know, what we do my cat with has ourselves. a certain personality we think of ourselves as yeah. our per, as this idea of the personage that we have of ourselves yeah but really you're deeper you are the but there's something the, deeper you are the being, you are the essential being instance of person and how that uniquely shines yeah. through you yeah. prior to your egoistic attachments and things like that it's the most natural and unconditional and, and, side and of including you. that yeah. as well you know because that sticky ball isn't just you know egoic attachments it's and it's all the relationships you have with the world with yourself with you know others. the only problem is you you're know. right because all of that is wrapped up in the in the personing and the only problem that we have in this world as human beings is that we are misidentifying ourselves as our personage or as at, our cast or, image, as yeah, our idea of self, rather than the natural beingness. Yeah, as as the components, uh, as the um, instead of beyond the sum of all the components of 
what's stuck to the sticky ball of self. Mm -hmm. Um, We are the thing that is that self and all the relationships, but greater than the sum of all the relationships Mm -hmm. and that original thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, that that in my mind would be that, and that's the beingness that we're trying to the sense of that that we're trying to trigger with that existential yeah, inquiry. Because we are the beings whose being is in question, and we are we are <laughs> beings. We exist before we have an essence. You know, yes. it's like this. Yes, before we have an idea, any any encapsulation of ideas about ourselves that we would think of as an essence. Before that, there's still our sense of attention. A yeah. sense of awareness, the sense of beingness itself, just being here in this moment, the sense of now. Yeah. It's synonymous with what we use the word I for. Yeah. I alone, just the I amness, you know, not I am this or I am that, but just the sense of I. That's the, your sense of being right there. And to turn our attention to that in a participatory fashion with the great mystery of life seems to be what Heidegger is trying to get at here, if I'm understanding it correctly. And someone that well, could be very helpful to anybody that's interested in getting into this level of the inquiry. I would look into a gentleman named Guy Sinstock. He's a great fan of Heidegger, or at least very well studied um, in Heidegger, and he's, he speaks of him uh, a lot in, in his work. And um, what, a, what a beautiful, incredible human being that Guy Sinstock is. He's actually a friend of John Verbeke's, and they've, had, they've engaged in dialogues together that they call dialogos and circling dialogues. These are different kinds of, communi- uh, of uh, communications, that styles that we can practice yeah. um, to work on very difficult philosophical or even intellectual questions together and to almost kind of awaken a kind of a hive, hive mind or a logos that works through the entire group at once and is uh, greater than the sum of the parts mm-hmm. of the individuals involved. So um, Heidegger... Mm-hmm. He makes words. I I, I feel he that I make words good. when I don't have the proper words for things. But so Dawson, Dawson or Dacian, yeah, I think yeah. it's uh, Dawson. I don't know. Di- I'm going to call it Dyson because I can say Dyson. Dawson be, being there, and yes. not to be confused with the idea of lived experience, mm-hmm. because you know, like a lot of you know what we will call like woke or neo Marxist or you know all of that end still this is all trying to figure out the very things that we're discussing in this and terms and ideas can be morphed and changed and perverted and turned into control mechanisms yes or turned into something that's uh what's it a thought a a thought canceling i don't know utterance or word i forget but um i forget the word but anyway it, it it's like you say like, you know lived experience okay what does that mean um okay you've experienced oh you being the things that make you up in any given circumstance whenever they're important to the argument or whatever lived experience you could also call it anecdotal experience mm-hmm. as this well. is my reality yeah. yeah which you know in the case of and putting you, the subjective it, above an actual yeah real it, real yeah ontology P- putting the putting the anecdote which the anecdote is singular for data you know you have data which is a bunch of different points of information and then you have anecdote which is one point within the data and that is a datum by the way d-a-t-u-m u-m i think datum is a singular point but it's anecdote oh i have an anecdote the reason why we don't use anecdotes too often in you know scientific endeavors is because say one individual's lived experience anecdotal experience is there's no way a to figure out if how true that actually is if somebody's telling you about it 
Mm -hmm. And B, between you and me, we may have very similar lives, if you will. We can grow up on the same block. Mm -hmm you know, right next to each other, go to the same school and still have, completely there's different. an actual, so it's not reliable reality. over. Yeah. It's not multi app. That's right. Uh, the word, multi, not multi app, but multi part, you know, being able to be applied over a large group yeah. of people, you know, right. you that's know, right. Yeah. It's like, you know, using skin color to be like, Oh, well, everybody of the same skin color has the same lived experience. That's and the true. same traits and the same cultural. Yeah. yeah. And we, you know, we used to know that that was a bad thing, but now we're back to like, that's how we look at everything. Right? Yeah. Everything's identity <laughs> politics Weird. all over again. Um, Racial identitarianism, and, and, and not, segregation. And not back. diminishing the hardships that people go through. I, I don't mean to. Absolutely. You know, no, I, I mean, people are trying to solve things like here, but you know, sometimes yeah. we, we can uh, find ourselves captured by poisonous ideologies that seem good on the surface because they're couched in benevolent language, but underneath there's something that is quite inherently divisive. So, so to, to jump back, so Heidegger is trying to get us into aporia, a state of not knowing, so that we yeah. can remember the being mode as it actually is, yeah. prior to our interpretations of it, prior to our you know, expectations and reservations, everything, just here now being as it is, there is some kind of objective reality that we can all tap mm. into and confronting that mystery, but not it, that, Put, but while not engaging or having needs, but yeah, becoming yeah. processes and putting our be our, our very being into existence. So mm. questioning the knowledge of our being and is also leading us into questioning being and putting being into question. Mm -hmm. Like what, what is it to be a being? Yes. Yes. You that, know. that yes. An orientation to be in participation with who I am and what being is. Yeah. So we can, we can remember the being mode yeah. and open to the wonder of our own being as these strange self-designing self-making beings yeah. and get to know that rather than all the details that we attach to that just that itself and come into contact with the mystery of being itself being yes. there so being there as in you are being there is a being there so <laughs> i had this good so a being there is being there if you're really getting into it you mm, know mm. like actually being the place as well because there's a certain yes, yeah. internalization of our exter exterior environment yeah when we yeah, exist yeah. in a place yeah so the being that is there is being it's there. Being there. Yeah. It's being there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It popped through my head. It was easier to pop through my head and get it at once than it was to actually explain it out. But yeah. uh, it was fun though. It was cool. Um, so we want to be in contact not with that autobiographical ego, but what DJ was just pointing to there, with yeah. our being and deepen the contact by exploring this, by phenomenologically exploring this in that kind of probative, experimental, open kind of way that is not trying to decipher and come to any conclusion, but is literally there for the wonder of it itself. Just like when you're a kid and you're looking at a leaf or an ant under a magnifying glass, there isn't a goal to that. You're just doing it for the sake of being in that wonder of it, in that moment. So that's it. That's so, how we, that's, that's true meditation right there that, that Verveke has helped us understand through Heidegger. And Heidegger, of course, is deeply influenced by Eckhart, which is a Christian mystic, and by Buddhism as well on the Eastern side. So this is a beautiful person to, to key into here. I, I see why he's doing this. And, and you know, I think well, let's, Heidegger's let's, let's argument... Let's be ambivalent to him, though. Verveke says he's kind of yeah, ambivalent. Because yeah. I know that he doesn't totally agree with Heidegger either, but he likes 
the no, directionality he, he of where is, he's he inquiring. He's part of this network. He's part uh, of us of where we are now. Developing yeah. this. So Heidinger's argument that history of metaphysics is the history of nihilism, uh, nihilism I think, like personally, yeah. Yeah, and us yeah. trying to battle with it by developing all of these different mm -hmm. interpretations of of uh, spiritual s systems, because that's initially they were there was some kind of like spiritual approach. There was a way that somebody demonstrated, and then we came along and developed our interpretations of that. And and you know every religion has multiple different sects to it because we're all trying to interpret and find a, the best way to internalize and embody and interact with it. And we're all in disagreement over it, so it really has put us in kind of a nihilistic state at this point. We cannot agree, yet we're all talking about, it seems like the same mountaintop, just different paths to get there. Yeah. So th I guess Heidegger's goal would be using Dyson to break the grammar that we're stuck in, right? Yeah, that has to, driven us into the meaning yeah, crisis. to situate our attention into a being mode mm -hmm. um, and, and removing us from a subjective having mode yeah to remember to the remembering of being and our status and respect to being like our orientation to that wow to get us beyond the framework of the cartesian dualism so we've got That's, um uh, in the comments on the live of an episode in the comments on the live stream uh roy mcphail mr roy mcphail hey, said, hey. what's up roy Hey guys, I encourage artificial wisdom as leveraging our ideals in our parenting of the next generation. I love it. Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, in a matter of beautiful vision. Uh, so the step before, well, uh, multiple steps towards. before this whole AI thing, we had books and we had storybooks for kids. And one I remember that nobody, nobody else seems to remember. And it's really frustrating because like, I remember it. There was like, you know, lions and bears and, and like, you know, kids learning their lessons through it. It was the Book of Virtues. And it goes through oh, all wow. the different virtues and tells stories of, that try to... I almost remember Try to embody these virtues in a way that could be digestible for yeah. children. So using AI in the next one, it's like, you know, uh, it could be a powerful tool to help help us correct this downfall of what's happening to our young people right now where they're you know not hardly literate they don't know how to behave they don't look out they don't have wonder anymore they don't have enough good guides anymore because our communities are so disconnected even our families in many cases are disconnected and kids need good mentors good guides i would yeah. love to see that the leveraging of artificial wisdom yeah yeah and and really you know and the parenting of our children yeah allowing us to really use our ideals and mm -hmm. you know hopefully ideals that we can you know maybe not per like end state perfect but the continuation of perfecting our ideals and ai socrates you know. could help us guide could help guide us in the development of new educational systems or even hey like um you know i, I forget what it was but there was like you know a in a movie, um, this holographic, cartoonized uh, Albert Einstein that would mm. help the whatever the protagonist. Yeah, that you was just something. made me think of like a teddy bear that is imbued with. Yeah, it's like little Einstein. You, know, you can ask Einstein, you know, like and yeah, at a kid level, hey, or even at adult level, like uh, talk about you know some of your ideas and what they mean. What you know, what does you know general relativity mean for where I am? What's going mm -hmm. on? How do I understand it? You know, 
and then you know it's it, it would be interesting it, though there are some you know moral and theologically ethical questions that we're going to have to really start talking about and soon because it's you know it, the future is now more than ever and <laughs> coming fast yeah, yeah. <laughs> the future's now and coming fast and hitting hard <laughs> it's coming exponentially faster yeah yeah, yeah i i, I uh, have this vision of us on this ever-growing tidal wave while we are developing ever more capable technology to surf that wave and uh, the wave is speeding up and growing bigger and at some point it's gonna you would think climax and peak and then start to fall and hopefully we can surf that wave right on the way down too and i think that we have the technology we have we have the sense of wonder we certainly have the intellectual capacity we just have not the wisdom to responsibly wield that capacity as of yet but i i uh I'm, I'm grateful for this, for Verveke sharing this project, uh, this encouragement to cultivate wisdom, to become rational beings again, uh, that we may be able to uh, circumvent the breakdown, awaken from the meaning crisis. I think it's it's a beautiful effort, and so uh, you know that's all I got to say about that. But. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You got anything else to say on this one? Um, no, just uh, thanks, Roy, for um, for uh, getting in the live chat. So, uh, once we get into the new studio and get that set up, um, I'll be able to have a computer that is looking at that. Yeah, we'll both be but I, like my phone is, I'm, I'm listening to the lecture on my phone, so I can get up and like go pee or do whatever. And also, might even get a third person to help us out here to run video and run sound in the background and all huh. that. I think we're doing a pretty good job. Occasionally, you know, things mess up, but you know, we'll have a soundboard stuck in the corner like we we do now. But the new situation will be a lot easier to keep track of uh, who's engaging with us live. So for the live chatters that we've missed, I'm sorry. Limited technology. I only got one phone and don't have my computer hooked up because I don't got feel our like notes and everything. And yeah, we only got one stand for a computer right now, and it's it's a. Uh, like a guitar throne we're squeezed in here but we're going to be moving the operation over to my place soon we're going to build out a beautiful studio dj's got a great idea on how to put that together and we're going to come up with a, it's kind of like a uh, something hopefully even better than, than this for you guys it's and, the murphy bed studio you know how a murphy bed you pull it out of the wall and it lays down yeah basically the yeah. idea is like you know uh foldable skillful, compactable yeah where it yeah. just turns into a nice looking wall piece with shelves and other stuff like that with a nice bar I'm okay in front if it, of it takes up a little bit of room too it'll be nice to it have should, it in it should house. take up more more room than three feet off your wall so right that's fair we can work with that yeah well, i'm but. so grateful for all of you guys being here with us and traveling along this crazy journey with john Bervaki. i uh would love for you guys to if you're appreciating this at all to go over there to John Bervaki's channel like and subscribe and check out the work that he has ongoing and uh, the many others that he's dialogued with and we encourage you guys to uh, you know engage with this project project let's let's get into this together let's delve in to our sense of being let's perfect ourselves as human beings I know I for one have struggled through this series it has been hard for me to grasp but I uh, nonetheless appreciate what John Bervaki has has done here and that he really has carried us along with him um you know it's, it's t taken some rewatching of some parts of episodes and uh looking back on the terminology and 
understanding definitions again, but it, it really all has started snapping together beautifully at this point. And that was, a, that was a beautiful conclusion to his argument of how we develop wisdom and how we may awaken from the meaning crisis. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to go into the prophets these next few episodes. And so thank you all for being here with us. Oh, and I know I, it's not been a hard, it's not been an easy road. It's been a hard climb, but we're here. I want to make it. another apology for those listening with the volume up. Um, I just realized now that there's a very minor buzz um, crackly thing in the background. My apologies, you know, uh, analog equipment interfacing with digital, man. You got to love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is yeah. there? It's, it's, it's a very, very slight, it's a 60 cycle hum. Something's not grounding right. So, mm, and, you know, we've got okay. multiple crappy, you know, LED lights hooked up into, uh, tr- you know, little charger blocks that aren't necessarily for whatever exactly for the voltages and all that stuff so it's a little cross speed from the electronics my bad we'll figure Ah. it out we'll get it better i'll I'll suss it out this week it's what it is guys we're here in the beginning of this series really meaning making 101 i think we've just scraped the surface of the potential that we have here and uh we're going to keep on doing our very best to grow and uh we invite you guys to grow along with us you know we ain't some wise teachers. We're just normal guys. We're trying to bring this crazy high-minded stuff down to a comprehensible level for anybody, you know? I mean, how can we relate this to young people? How can we relate this to our kids? And I think the best way to do that is to internalize it, embody it, and live it out, and share that way of being with the world through the very being of it. Wow, I feel woefully unqualified, but I, I love the encouragement that we have here to, to become wiser, to become more loving, to become more aware agents. And I do believe that we can do anything that we put our minds to. Humans have proven that time and again. We are miracle makers. So yep. let's, well, not, uh, let's not be doomers. Let's, let's see let's what we can do. Bloomers. We might have a 0.001% chance of success, and I think that's enough to strive Oh yeah, to and strive hey, for you know, and even if we don't, if there's no chance of success, it feels great. It feels right. It feels like the proper response to what's happening in the world to at least try and be a little bit better. Yeah, and you know, we can change this world from the inside out. Why be a boomer? Or yeah, why be a doomer when you can be a bloomer? Truth, truth. I like that. Why be a doomer when you can be a bloomer? Because you know. We don't want to just blame the world outside, and we don't want to keep trying to, to cure the symptoms of, of a disease and chop at limbs. We really want to get to the root of it, and the root is within every single one of us. We are society, right? At least that's the, uh, the, the solution is in, ev- in every one of us. Mm-hmm. Society is made up of many individual beings. and Well, if we're the problem, we're also the solution. We are Because indeed. the problem is just a solution that hasn't happened yet. There it is. I mean, like mathematically, most specifically, but, you know, also just in general. Yeah. So all of you imperfect beings, come along with us. We ain't nothing special either, but we're trying to improve each day, and we welcome you guys to join us on this journey. So let's do this then. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. This has been Meaning Making 101 on Actually a Podcast. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on the social medias. If you want to listen to this podcast after the fact, look at anchor.fm forward slash actual lie or just look us up on spotify or apple or google or wherever you like to listen we're out there make sure you drop some ratings some comments guys it helps the algorithm helps us reach more people 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and we will see you guys next time. Meow.